0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.
1: Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this special International Women's Day edition of Intelligence Squared. As many of you will know, Intelligence Squared also produces a podcast called How I Found My Voice with the award-winning presenter, Samira Ahmed. In the podcast, Samira speaks to some of the world's leading artists and cultural figures going behind the fame to understand the moments and people that shaped and inspired their voice. From Rose McGowan and Kate Winslet to Bernadine Evaristo and Margaret Atwood, the podcast has featured some incredibly inspiring women. And in this episode, we're going to be bringing you some best bits from the first three seasons of the podcast we really hope you enjoyed, and if you do make sure to click the link in our podcast description or search how i found my voice and subscribe today to listen back to these episodes in full and also be notified about new episodes in the coming weeks and months now let's go to the episode <laughs>
2: On How I Found My Voice, producer Farah Jasset and I have always tried to spotlight women we admire and I was absolutely thrilled to win the British Broadcasting Press Guild's Audio Presenter of the Year Award 2020 for this podcast. So for International Women's Day, we thought we'd put together some highlights of our favourite female interviewees so far. First up is a special preview of our upcoming episode with multi award winning novelist and poet Margaret Atwood. Here she is talking about the eerie new resonance of The Handmaid's Tale after the election of Donald Trump and
3: Mike Pence. In the 70s, there was a lot of second wave women's movement activity, and a lot of what rights were actually won in that decade across the spectrum, all different kinds of rights, including you know divorce rights and whether you can have a bank account and this kind of stuff, which we've sort of forgotten it was ever like that, but it was. Um, so the 80s, you start seeing a pushback politically, and you start seeing, yeah, yeah, a backlash, <laughs> a pushback, a backlash. Um, and you start seeing the rise of the religious right as a political force, Focused on those ideas. So books like that come out of questions that you're asking yourself. And the questions that I was asking myself, number one, so women are out there running around in a feckless way out in the world and having jobs and incomes and things. And if, if what you want to do is push them back into the home, how do you do that? You know, what would be the mechanism for doing that? The credit card had been invented, and I thought, well, they'll just cancel all their credit cards and uh, fire them all. That's what they would do. And the second question would be, because I've always been interested in totalitarianisms and autocracies growing up when I did, if you were going to have a totalitarianism in the United States, what kind of totalitarianism would it be? So it wouldn't be, hi, my name is Joe, let's all be communists that would not fly but if it if it would be some form of quasi theocracy which you see people pushing for this all the time you know they want to get god back into politics which the founding fathers explicitly did not do because they had seen what had happened in the 17th century in, in europe with religious wars so they explicitly did not do that and you're, you're constantly seeing a, a push of this faction that has always been there in the United States, which is a theocratic group of people, which is what the Puritans were, trying to get that you know back in there so that they can start telling people what to believe and getting rid of other people.
2: When the TV series spun off in 2017 and people started dressing up as handmaids at political protests... How how did you feel about that? What did you make yeah, of it? Yeah, the,
3: they had actually started doing that before the show, but but that really gave an impetus to it because even before the show, people knew what that outfit meant. It was a visual signal. You didn't have to disrupt anything. You could go into a legislature. Nobody could kick you out because you weren't mm-hmm. saying anything, and you weren't immodestly dressed. Heaven knows, you were all covered up. So nobody could eject you for having, you know, elbows sticking out or some loose thing like that. So, So it became very effective in a television age. Wouldn't have worked if we'd only had radio. But you could be there and just symbolize, just witness what was going on. And people started in Texas doing that, women started it in Texas, and then it spread all over the place, including places like Argentina, including including Ireland, really quite widespread when it was a question of laws being introduced that were counter to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights.
2: Margaret Atwood. From our latest episode to our very first, and one of the guests whose willingness to be honest has moved me most, actor and activist Rose McGowan had been the first woman in Hollywood to go public about the sexual predator Harvey Weinstein long before the Me Too movement took off. Together we revisited her 90s films and TV roles, with some humour, I should say, and the reality of how the Hollywood machine treated her and her generation of actresses.
4: Females in Hollywood can do an awful lot of damage. Um, they support a system, not all of them, of course, but I would say a, a large majority uh, support a system that doesn't support them. And I'm not talking about actresses necessarily. I'm talking about the, the people behind the scenes. There's a
2: lot of producers who are women, aren't there?
4: Yes, of course, because the male director needs a mommy. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of, I'm not, I don't want to distill their work to just that. Their work is certainly more than that, but there is an element of, I mean, that's what I saw on sets. It was, it was a lot of mommying going on. And um, then there'd be the money producer, who was the guy, of course. The woman producer was not the money person, usually. and the female agent told me I had to have long hair, otherwise the men in Hollywood wouldn't want to sleep with me. She said it in a ruder term. And if they didn't want to do that, then they wouldn't hire me. And I, you know, was terrified of being on the streets again. And I um, I grew my hair out. And the way I approached characters, uh, dressing-wise, was... I always try to be a bit subversive like I knew if the camera was going to be on my backside I would pick a skirt that had weird prints on it that did weird things (laughs) optical illusions or um, I tried my best in what was available to me which because I was heavily blacklisted in film became not a whole lot Um, you know my career went a very different I was on a very different trajectory when I was assaulted And then the heavy blacklisting came afterwards. The reason I wound up on TV is because the TV system was very separate from the film system then. And they hadn't gotten the news. They hadn't heard the word that I was unhirable. But I was thinking
2: even things like there's the time, you were told, you know, you weren't supposed to do anything to your hair in the break before filming restarted and you dyed it what color? Bright red. Bright red. But I love how you managed to get them to accept it.
4: Yeah, they were, the, the producers were like, what? There was an edict at the studio. The studio had nobody was allowed, no female was allowed to change her hair unless it was approved by him. And my co-star had cut bangs at one point and they freaked out that the audience wouldn't be able to recognize her she had bangs were fringe fringe yes (laughs) fringe i'm in the uk now (laughs) and so yeah i dyed my hair red and all i said was like well just say that a potion blew up in my face it turned my hair red and i wanted to i loved it and kept it and those were the first lines of the season (laughs) of course to explain why i had red hair it was never addressed again and the audience could still tell who i was It's amazing, isn't it? Amazing they're that smart. (laughs) And, you know, you said that producers labelled you
2: a, a bad girl. You look like a bombshell, but you didn't speak like one. Can you
4: explain what that meant? I would get an awful lot of, you're so smart for an actress, or you're too smart for your own good. I got those two things quite often. And, you know, my reply was usually, no, I'm just too smart for your good. And I'm making you uncomfortable because I'm... What was coming out of my mouth, which has never really changed that much, to tell you the truth, just didn't match what I looked like. And I think I had gotten so divorced from what kind of almost the caricature that I looked like of Hollywood glam. Um, I couldn't really see the problem with it. Uh, not that I think there should be one, by the way. I think mm-hmm. if you look a certain way and are intelligent and speak well, then go you it just wasn't something that is um expected I had a another female agent tell me I needed to stop speaking uh, as much in meetings because I was intimidating the <sighs> men. I went into my car after that and cried and I just it's it's hard not to feel despondent there
2: well it, in a sense it's an exact connection to that thing when you're told not to talk you know as a punishment that somehow
4: women speaking and being themselves gosh oh, forbid you actually speak gosh gosh forbid you speak up because how dare you
2: uppity uppity well that's a really interesting word and of course it's loaded in, it's in a loaded racial, way in as well. racial way as well but it has a really useful meaning isn't it it's about getting above your place what's yes. expected of you don't stand outside of your station in your memoir you recount the different ways actors and directors would humiliate you on set. There's the director who screamed bitch at you just for walking on the set, the actor who pushed a water bottle up your skirt. But also, and you've hinted at it already, the role of people like many women, you know, female producers who said nothing. And looking at your activism and looking at the way you speak about what's been going on in Hollywood,
4: how important are the people who said nothing in this story? Hugely important. Um, That's what I call the complicity machine. You know, um, not just producers, but agents, managers, lawyers, development people, studio heads. They're all, you know, to an extent in on it. And by everybody just keeping the attitude of she wore a short skirt, she deserved it, which is kind of the collective, or was anyway, the collective attitude, it keeps you very separate. You know, there's no human resources department for, for actors, there's no, or actresses, there's there's nothing. And very often I was the only woman almost on a, an entire set because it's a very male-dominated crew usually. I found the complicity machine, I, I find them more guilty because a predator to me has something wrong in their head. I have to think that, I have to believe that. Um, otherwise I think my brain would explode. But I, I don't understand how people can be so scared of doing the right thing that they would betray another human over and over and over again.
2: Rose McGowan. Another guest who had to negotiate the same dangerous landscape as a young woman in the acting business is Kate Winslet. Here we are exploring the tricky business of sex scenes then and now in the age of the intimacy coordinator it 's interesting we didn 't have
5: an intimacy coordinator on ammonite, and i think it 's partly because at the time that we made the film that was the beginning of two thousand and nineteen intimacy coordinators were only sort of slightly just becoming a thing they aren 't a legal requirement yet i don't i don 't believe on film sets and actually, Ammonite was truly a very low budget film, so there simply wasn 't the money we didn 't have stunt doubles we didn 't have hand doubles't you know we, we barely had a packed lunch you know so it was um so it was it wasn't something that was ever offered to us. But I think Sersha and I felt we felt quite confident in what we wanted to what we wanted to do with the characters in terms of their emotional journey within those intimate scenes. And I think the two of us together sort of looking after one another made us feel a bit better. But I absolutely I mean, instead not made us feel better, but made us feel, you know, made us feel bold and brave and actually we felt we felt good about what we'd planned and as you say it felt like it came from an honest place but but yes for sure I think in 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 the past I think I I I could have absolutely you know done with that you know that 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 friend really sometimes you just need you just need to have someone to say oh you know can you ask him to not put his hand there you know, just so it's not you who's having to say, "Do you mind not putting your hand there?" <laughs> you know, which can be, which can be pretty awkward. And I think it might have made it might have made a difference to me over the years. You know, it's inter- it's interesting. You know, with hindsight. I look back on all these things. But but I tell you one thing that it, it, that I, I feel very protective of younger actors now. And on on Mayor of Easttown, we had a situation where the young actress who plays my daughter her name is Angari Rice she's an Australian actress and she's 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 now 20 she was 19 at the time she plays an lgbtq character and she had an intimate scene in a car and and because there are no clothes that come off in this scene no one had thought to bring in an intimacy coordinator but but it was an lgbtq subject at that part in that part of the story and and I wasn't about to question her on her own sexual identity. I, it wasn't my business at all. But I just got the sense that she was nervous. And I said to her, you know, I'm going I'm to be around. I'm going to stay for this. I'm not going to leave the set. And she was like, oh, my God, Kate, thank you so much. Anyway, I actually ended up being in the car. I was in the boot of the car because I looked at this this vehicle. And it was these two young actresses together in the front seats of the car and two Absolute gentlemen, but two male camera operators in the car with them, being the only other people in their space. And that, 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 mm, mm, mm. I was like, mm, that's not, they need to know that they can say, actually, I don't feel comfortable. Lovely, respectful men who've been in the industry for years. But I just said, I said to Angari, do you want me to be in the car? And she was like, do you mind? And I said, absolutely. So I'm in, I was in the boot of the car just because, I just knew it. It just made them feel better to have that person who could put their hand up and say, "Actually, we're going to cut now." You know, uh, is everyone feeling okay? You know, sometimes directors even don't feel comfortable communicating with actors about intimate scenes, even if it's just kissing. Sometimes there are conversations that could be uncomfortable to have. You don't all know each other necessarily that well, and and so it's important. It's very, very important to always speak up, always say, "Actually, I don't feel like, feel comfortable with, with with that." Kate Winslet,
2: a different view on Hollywood now via Bollywood. Priyanka Chopra Jonas's acting career took off after she won the Miss World beauty pageant 21 years ago. Her ambivalence about the pageant world and her honesty about the sexism of Bollywood reveals so much.
6: I'm very conflicted by pageants in general because I do think that women shouldn't be judged based on how they look. I I don't think so. I think that happens to cattle and women. (laughs) But with the Miss World pageant specifically for me and the Miss India pageant, it was automatically in India, a stepping stone into the movies. But for me, that's not why it was exciting. For me, it was exciting because it was a competition. You know, I was like, all right, this is a competition. I'm going to, you know, find my best resources and win this thing. If it was a competition, a, a math competition, I would have done the same thing. If it was a science competition,
2: I would have done the same thing. Let's talk about Bollywood because, you know, you were offered multiple film deals But navigating this new world of Bollywood must have been tricky, even with all that will and that hard work, because it's very macho. You know, you write in your memoir about, you know, male co-stars who could turn up at 4.30 in the afternoon and everyone else has to wait. It's just how it is. How did you manage all that? How did you decide to find your way? That was how it
6: was. It was so normalized, and it is so normalized in a lot of industries, even now. That, you know, that's just how... Those were the murky waters you navigated. And you knew that. You knew that you would always be secondary to the male actor. You knew that it was the male actor that would call the shots. You knew that it was a patriarchal system. You knew that... You know, I just knew all of those things, which is why whenever I had to stand up for myself within Bollywood, I did it quietly. I never made a stink about it. I never talked about it because the system was just the way it was.
2: How do you do it quietly?
6: For example, there was this one director who spoke to me in a very derogatory way while I was doing a song with him for a Bollywood movie. And he said something to the effect of, you know, I should be able to see her panties, otherwise, you know, who's going to come and watch the movie? And he said it to me right in front of my face and didn't, not even looking at me, talking to my stylist. Now, in a moment like this today... It would have been a different situation. But at that time, when I was just starting my career, I was new. I knew that I was told multiple times that girls are dispensable. You know, if you don't take it as it is, somebody else is going to take it as it is. So you just took what you were given. And at that time, what I did was I walked out of the movie without telling the director why I did that. I just said I was uncomfortable. I just said I hadn't comprehended the part well. I didn't, that's what I mean by doing it quietly, is by not taking it on, by not having the courage to be honest and tell this person that you're disrespecting me and I will not stand for it. I didn't have that courage because I was told to work within the system and that's what I did.
2: Do you have that courage now?
6: Yeah, I don't think anybody will say that to me now.
2: (laughs) Priyanka Chopra Jonas. Comedian Catherine Ryan has also moved across continents from Canada to the UK to build her career. And in one of our most downloaded episodes, her insights into how much she learned about performance and sisterhood working at Hooters will, I think, delight you.
7: I started working at Hooters by accident. Everything that's happened to me has been by accident. I had a job at a bar called Originals And I was walking in the heat. It was September. I had just moved to Toronto. I was walking, and I was wearing black, as a lot of waitstaff do. And I couldn't find, because it was my first time in a big city, I couldn't find originals. I was walking all around. I was getting really hot. I get super upset if I'm hot because I'm terribly Irish, skinned, almost ginger. I can't be in the sun. And then I saw like a beacon of light, this branding. I saw Hooters, and I knew what Hooters was. And I said to myself, well, if I worked at Hooters, I'd be at work by now. And instead of going to originals, I popped into Hooters, and I asked if I could have a job. And of course, I had skin-colored hair and hair-colored skin at the time, very blonde, 18 years old, exactly what they're looking Mm -hmm. for. And they gave me a job right on the spot. And I liked it because, again, it was that archetype, this friendly, submissive cheerleader woman, the type of girl that I thought that I could learn to be. But I learned the very opposite at Hooters. Hooters, like the Golden Girls, is a matriarchy. It's loads of young women working together. The managers, who are mostly men, though there were some female managers, they just hide from us in the office. (laughs) And it is the women and the smartest, most layered, multitasking women who do well at Hooters and who can collaborate and cooperate. The girls that came in there who just looked like supermodels, they didn't last very long. Now, there are beautiful women who are extremely effective as well. But the girls that didn't have layers and didn't have anything other than what they looked like on the outside, they just didn't like it there. It's part of
2: the thing that you also needed to have your wits about you to work out how to handle customers. A bit like those male-dominated panel shows where there's a lot of banter and some of the stuff becomes quite close to crossing the line. Yeah.
7: I mean, what what... Is that part of it? Sure. Banter was absolutely a key thing at Hooters to be able to get on with someone and chat, not in a sexual way. I think in Britain, people don't really understand what Hooters is about. It's not a strip club. You're not meant to chat to them in a sexual way. You're just meant to be accommodating and nice and friendly and laugh at their jokes. If you're entertaining, then people would come back and see you again, and it would give this vibrant restaurant vibe if you had interesting girls there. I mean, I just really liked it. And then we had bikini pageants. I did the bikini pageant once, and I was Miss Hooters Toronto. And (sighs) I got to travel around and do more bikini pageants in Florida. And I knew that wasn't for me. But then the following year, I asked the manager if I could present the bikini pageant. Instead of this man that we got to do it in a bow tie. So it changes everything when you've got a woman presenting at the bikini Right, And I don't know what gave me the courage to ask. I just wanted to do it. I said, well, how about you let me present it? And he said yes for whatever reason. And that's that was a real pivotal moment for me. I got to put on a glamorous dress and hold the microphone and compare, really. It was stand-up comedy. Were you subverting the pageant as you were comparing it? I was. So the questions before I came along would have been, "Uh, if you could be anything on the menu, what would you be and why? (sighs) And the girls would say, I'd be hot, naked, spicy wings because I'm saucy and delicious or whatever. So I would make sure that the most effective servers and the girls who chipped in the most Uh, And got their hands dirty. I made sure that they came out winners of the pageant. So I'd ask questions like, Jessica, where do we keep the bin bags? And some (laughs) of the girls didn't know. And I'd be like, oh, it seems you've never taken out the bins. Well, Jessica, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I asked loads of questions. I would ask some political questions. I would ask like just I wanted everyone to feel included and to make it fun. But also I wanted the hardest working women to shine. Some people might
2: hear what you say and think, yeah, but, you know, it's still Hooters. It's still all about, pleasure. you know, pleasing men and making them feel important. And that's not very feminist. How would you answer that?
7: I mean, they're probably right. I don't think Hooters was designed to be feminist. It was created in 1983 in Clearwater, Florida. It was six businessmen, the original six. One of their secretaries used to run on her lunch hour. And that's what... One would wear to run an exercise in the 80s, like slouch socks and trainers, little orange shorts and a white vest. And the men just said, that's what's sexy. Just a girl next door with very little makeup on, sports on TV, beer, chicken wings. Yeah, it was certainly – I mean, it, no, it isn't feminist. Of course not. <laughs> but it's a kind of – it's a kind of more
2: wholesome version of the Playboy Club bunny, isn't
7: Yeah, it? well, maybe. Maybe
2: it make the guys feel good.
7: Yeah, but that is what a cheerleader is. That is what um, a lot of roles in society are, whether we make it so overt. But also, um, I was 18, 19, 20 years old, still learning about my place in the world, what my role was, how I could be happiest and most effective as a young woman growing up watching Britney Spears.
2: Catherine Ryan. The House of Commons in the UK Parliament often seems to have much in common with the comedy club scene, with the still overwhelmingly male jeering and shouting down. Labour MP Jess Phillips is herself a queen of the put-down. We had an excellent discussion about language around women and the art of swearing.
8: I used to be really, really conscious and really hate Listening back to the sound of my voice, I really hated it. And I frequently get referred to as Sir on the telephone because my voice is really low, or get called Jeff when you say your (laughs) name's Jess. (laughs) Happens all the time. Um, Which I I mean, and now I've grown to love that. You should have. Uh, But I used to be like cringing when that would happen to me. But uh, my accent is my single greatest asset and I truly believe that it has always been the thing that people will remember about me is my actual voice and also that my um, ability to swear I have to say is one of the greatest gifts that I have I read a thing when Marina Hyde somebody said how is it that she writes such amazing columns and she said it's just swearing Um, and my ability to swear actually makes people
2: feel comfortable with me. Could you give us a couple of examples? Of- <laughs> I mean, I will
8: swear all the time. I don't even know I'm doing it half the time. And I obviously I'm uh, adult enough to not do it when I'm in company because I haven't sworn here. But I will say the word fuck literally every third word normally. <laughs> it's not even in exasperation. My children, who are now 10 and 14, I have absolutely no problem with them swearing at home. I don't mind them swearing at all as long as they don't swear at each other in aggression or swear at anyone in aggression and they don't swear at school. Those are the the rules. That
2: makes it harder in a way. I'm interested as well in... Because obviously there's a sense of you're being true to yourself. You really, know, yeah. really authenticity is this big obsession in our era. But as you've always applied, there are codes. So not swearing in Parliament or your kids knowing they mustn't swear at each other outside the home. Mm. I mean, isn't that complicated? Well, no, just, I mean, all I, say, what
8: I don't want them to do is say, like, you're a fucking asshole to each other. They can say, like, if they drop a book on their foot, like, fuck, that's fine. They are completely different things. One is like common parlance in my mm-hmm. home, and I could never, it would be, it would be really hypocritical of me to say that they couldn't swear because they have been raised in quite a sweary household. Oh, can I ask you a question? <laughs>
2: How do you feel about the C word? Because. I, I first came across the word reading D.H. Lawrence. For yeah. me, it's always been a term of affection. And, <laughs> and it's something that, you know, it's a very beautiful, intimate. But the irony of people saying that Donald Trump, he's, you know, yeah. he's a, a C word because he hates women. You know, there's a whole feminist argument about yeah, that Yeah, so my
8: mum hated the C word, absolutely hated it in a sort of proper old school feminist way. You can say it, I, I, just, I can't
2: bring myself to uh, it Well, I abuse. say
8: it all the time, I'm afraid to Do say. You? Yeah, it's not something I don't feel squeamish about. I don't feel squeamish about any of the uh, sort of gendered um, swear words. So the word bitch, the word, yeah, I don't feel... You don't worry
2: about people saying, you know, grow a pair of balls or, you know, only anyone with any balls in this situation? I, I mean,
8: I, I would prefer it if the language about men, like, grow a pair of yeah. balls. I would prefer it if it wasn't positives for men, negatives for women. But there are great, there are bigger battles to fight. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. I am a product of the, this society I grew up in. And that's just the way people talk. One thing I really hate, I really hate it when women are referred to as girls. That is the only bit of language I find really, really... And there is a lot of sexist language that I think it would be better if... It didn't have the connotations that it did. Certainly about women who are sexually active, like slag slut. and slut yeah. and those sorts of things. That I don't like actually, um, and I, I wouldn't necessarily use those words. There are a lot
2: of them as well. There
8: are a lot of those, but yeah, saying someone's a twat is absolutely fine.
2: Okay. No, just, you're, I don't mean a bigger battle to
8: and to a prick. Five. You know, those two things, I'm, I'm fine with both of those. I've to heard be the word
2: you, "someone's an utter cock" used yeah. very effectively. Yeah, as know. an alternative, a different c-word. Yeah, exactly. Jess Phillips MP. Women standing up to be counted on political issues inevitably seems to draw abuse and threats. Gina Miller experienced it when she led a successful legal campaign to force Parliament to have the ultimate say over Brexit. But her bravery came from years of independence and a traumatic experience of violence. The result is fearlessness. Have a listen. You did some modelling for a while. Um, was this in the what, 1980s? Would it be? This was at university because, I, I, you know,
9: again, it was about money. It was about whatever. Yeah. And that I found a very strange experience.
2: Yes. Well, I want to ask you about that because, you see, I, I was a teenager in the 80s and I have really clear memories of the few women of Asian heritage that I yes. saw in magazines. It was very exciting to see women who looked like you. And, you know, I know you earned good money. I know you feel uneasy about it. But I just thought you should know that it was a moment where we started to see ourselves represented in magazines. And I suspect I would have seen images of you in fashion magazines and been thrilled.
9: It was quite extraordinary because I'd be um, sitting in front. You literally are treated like a piece of meat or a commodity. I'd be sitting in a casting and they'd say, oh, well, we don't mind having somebody of colour, but, you know, she's a bit too dark or we could maybe lighten. It was extraordinary. I'd be sitting right there. Um, or you know we can't have her on the cover of this or this product because you know what would the, you can't have um, uh, coloured women with makeup because then it would put off other people buying the makeup or hair product. It was extraordinary the, the conversations I'd be in. So to actually get a job and then be able to represent you know for someone like Monsoon who I did a, a season for, yes. um, I, I was aware that it was it was sending out a very positive image, which. I'm very aware of, of my responsibility, and I always have a very strong sense of responsibility. So even though I hated the job, um, and the money was good, I was also I was doing going to do it to the best of my ability. Yeah. So it's really great to hear that because I never got any feedback, but I was hoping it would be positive.
2: Yeah, and I know you, you felt you were exoticized yes. you, in terms of how you would be dressed or the it way was that strange. they would shoot it was, you.
9: I, I always remember one other shooter, and uh, they'd started doing the whole sort of animal print. Um, uh, sort of material so that was the one I was going to do for the sh- for that fashion shoot but what they then did was to put blonde streaks in my hair so I literally looked like a lion or a tiger I mean, it was a bizarrest look and in those days we had big hair and you know all layered and very big hair and I looked like a gone wrong Tina Turner I think well I don't think
2: there's any such thing as a gone wrong Tina Turner You did a law degree at the University of East London, but left before finishing. And I know there's been a kind of good ending because very recently you were awarded an honorary degree. That I think sort of, was it 30, 30 years, years to the all, day? Yes, almost, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, that you left. Um, but can you tell me what happened? Why you ended up leaving?
9: I so wanted to be like my father. So my dream was always to be, a. a, a, a I was going to be the best criminal barrister I could be. That was my plan. So I went to University of East London it was an odd time, I think, uh, in the sort of early 80s, because as women of color going to university, there was a certain way you were supposed to behave um, and be part of a group.
2: Was this, Darisot, to do with assumptions about being Asian and yes, Asian being Muslim? Yes.
9: I went to university, and for the first year and second year, by the time I got into my second year and then third year, there was a lot of abuse because why wasn't I joining the Asian Society? Why hadn't I not joined the you know, whatever society it was, um, and why was I dressing the way I was? Why was I not? So I actually, long story short, I was about to take my finals. I was leaving one night from campus to get on the tube from Barking back to to Highbury where I lived, and I was attacked on campus by a group of men, Asian men, who thought that I was le- you know I wasn't behaving properly. And I was raped. I'm so sorry. Um, So I was then... It broke me for about seven months. Um, Sorry, it's still incredibly emotional. Of Um, course, I'm I'm so great. I appreciate you talking about it. But it's really important because this side, you know, it's it's, why I think it's important to talk about it is because there's so many assumptions made. And I think being honest about things is, is the best way of exposing what really is going on, but also helping other people. Because... You have to understand that prejudice comes from many places and in many forms. There is no one place it comes from, no one place where bullying or misogyny or racism comes from. It comes in all f- sorts of shapes and forms, um, and that uh, standing up has sometimes its price to pay. Because I had stood up to this group for a long time, and they, I think, the the thing that really triggered it for them. When I was in those all those months, I locked myself in my bedroom for a very long time because I felt so dirty and ashamed. I didn't tell the police or anything. I mean, I just felt they wouldn't believe me. I think, what and I put it together, that what had happened was I, I was a real cricket fan. I played cricket for a while. So I was actually at uh, the overwatching watching uh, a, a match, England-Pakistan match. And I think some of them were there and saw me with my then, well, he then became my husband, but my white boyfriend. So I think that was the ultimate Sort of sin, if you like, in their eyes.
2: Gina Miller. Like Gina, novelist and activist Elif Shafak is a proud citizen of the world. She's a familiar, thoughtful voice on news programmes, speaking out about the erosion of civil liberties in her native Turkey as much as her fiction. Here she is discussing why the characters in her books and her
10: campaigning
2: on tolerance
10: are intertwined. When it comes to freedom of speech, human rights, women's rights, LGBT rights, certain core issues, we need to speak up. On the other hand, when I speak up, uh, I do it as Elif. I don't represent any collectivistic identity at all. And when I look at myself, I, I don't like identity politics. I've always been very critical of identity politics. Why? Two things. Of course, I'm an Istanbulite. I'm very attached to Istanbul. But there's a part of me that's attached to the Balkans as as an area, the Aegean Sea, Mm -hmm. the Mediterranean. I think I carry so many things in my soul from the Middle East. Wherever I go, they will come with me. By birth, by choice, I'm a European. The values that I share. I have become a Londoner over time. And I would like to think of myself as a global soul. I I want to become a global soul. To me, these things are important. So why can't I have multiple belongings uh, instead of a single monolithic identity, which is in my eyes an illusion anyway. None of us has uh, a monolithic identity. But if I may share this with you, you know, I lived in Boston for a while and it left a big impact on me, African-American women's movement, in Boston. And as I kept reading in the archives, in 1970s, there was an amazing momentum and an amazing manifesto for diversity. People like Audre Lorde, they were saying, look at me, you know, I'm black, I'm a woman, I'm a poet, I'm lesbian, uh, I'm working class, this and that. They were aware that uh, there's no such thing as a single identity and oppression can come from many, many, Angles I suppose we'd call it intersectionality now intersectionality but we have lost that you know today it's people think it's much more progressive um, to be just to belong in one tribe and 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 to become the spokesperson of that tribe. I've, I think that's a big step backwards. We are making the political discourse more narrow. Uh, and also clashes are inevitable once you retreat into into tribes.
2: And you thought about it so carefully, but it also inevitably makes me want to ask, as someone who's always spoken out, who's always believed in, in th- focusing on what unites us and not our divisions. Relatively recently, you've gone public about your bisexuality, yeah. and I wondered why you did decide to talk about it.
10: Well, it took me such a long time. It was a long journey. Although, uh, when, when you look at my work, when you look at my novels, there's always... Uh, a very clear maybe emphasis on sexual minorities and the desire to bring the periphery to the center. This has been a very important part of my work. And in all my interviews, I have supported LGBT rights for for many, many, many years in Turkey as well. And if I can share this example with you, When I look at my readers, particularly in Turkey, among them there are many people who are quite xenophobic or quite homophobic because this is the way they were raised. But then they come and they say, you know, I read your book and this is the character that I love the most or I cried when that character was hurt and maybe the character they're talking about is Armenian or Jewish or Greek or or bisexual or transsexual or gay. And I thought about this, you know, people who are relatively... more intolerant in the public space about minorities. How is it possible that when they're reading a novel, they can connect with that identity better? I don't think that's a coincidence, you know, because this, this authoritarian culture requires collectivistic energy, synchronized energy. And what the novel does is to to revive an individuality, Mm -hmm. but not a selfish individuality. It's the kind of individuality that connects you with the rest of humanity. It gives us empathy. It gives us empathy and it makes us realize that the other is my brother, the other is my sister, the other is me, in fact. So this is what I believed in for many years, but I never had the courage to come forward and say, it's also my personal story because I was so afraid um of the backlash that this would create in turkey the slander the ridicule the hate speech and this is exactly what happened when i gave my TED talk in new york um for about 3 weeks nonstop in turkey all over the media on tv um online of course the insults the slander and the hate speech was was awful was awful but i um i'm glad i was able to to say it finally you know it's 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 hard to to speak up in in countries like Turkey. uh, Sometimes you realize, of course, political taboos are difficult to question, but sexual taboos can also be equally difficult to question. These are clearly very patriarchal and very homophobic lands. And the sad thing is, of course, uh, homophobia can exist on very different sides of the ideological spectrum. Elif Shafak.
2: The novelist as activist is an identity that Bernadine Evaristo has inhabited all her working life and she'd won many awards and literary acclaim for her earlier books but when we spoke not long after she won the Booker Prize for Fiction it was a marvellous sense of how calmly prepared she was for the opportunities this new recognition for girl, woman, other opened up. It's funny, reading Girl, Woman, Other, you know, there's two characters in particular who started out in radical theatre and then one of them becomes this kind of big success at the National Theatre and that is both um, a great thing and also a kind of burden. I was interested in how you played with the idea of the career paths of women in this group.
11: Absolutely, because, you know, I think one of the things the book does is explore where where people begin and how they get to where they end up, you know, at whatever stage they are in the novel. Um, the 12 women, Amma is the one who's the theatre director. She's the one who comes of age about the same time that I did, forms the theatre company, Bush Women Theatre, with her great friend Dominique, although the fact that they become great friends, and then spends nearly 40 years working in fringe and alternative theatre, uh, staying true to her creative poetics as such, you know, very much strong black women's productivity, but then ends up having a show at the National Theatre and then has to negotiate what that means for her because she's always seen herself as an outsider railing against the status quo. And suddenly the establishment opens its doors and says, you know, come in and do a show at the Royal National Theatre, which, of course, is the most prestigious venue in this country. And she does it, but she does it on her own terms. And the the, the play is a success. Um, even though some of her peers consider her to be selling out, Do you know
2: it's doubly ironic that you won the Booker Prize for this novel. I know. Have I you know. Thought About how that whole way of of looking at your own success and the, the, the if the Booker is a kind of literary establishment, has it opened its doors then?
11: Well, it definitely has. You know, and it's it is sort of life imitating art in a sense. But of course, when I started this book and when I wrote uh, Amma's section, I hadn't really. No idea what was going to happen with, with Girl, Woman, Other. You know, at the beginning of this year, 2019, the book was still in proof stage, hadn't gone out to readers. We weren't getting feedback from it. You know, often a book will go into a bound proof stage and then you'll send it out to readers and they'll give feedback on it and you you'll get a sense of whether this book is working or not. Well, that didn't happen until about March with this book and then it was published in May. And so I had no idea that it was going to become the book that it is now, which, of course, is very exciting for me. But I was interested in that journey from from being somebody who is, you know, feels very oppositional to the mainstream and feels ignored by the mainstream and has to fight to be a voice um, in society to somebody who negotiates the establishment. And that is, in fact, what I've been doing. So Anna hasn't really been doing that. She's been creating this kind of sort of very marginalised theatre for something like 40 years, whereas I have slowly worked my way into what would be seen as mainstream positions. But, you know, so, for example, I'm a professor of creative writing. I'm the vice chair of the Royal Society of Literature. I mean, how more mainstream can you get? I write reviews for the national newspapers and so on. Um, But I I haven't lost my political... um, agenda and responsibility in any way. So even though I am in these institutions, I am still advocating for inclusion because that's so important to me. And also setting up various diversity initiatives to open the doors for other people. So I may appear to be an establishment figure, but if you look at what I do within those institutions, then actually I'm I'm sort of dismantling the status quo from within.
2: Bernadine Everisto. The singer-songwriter Paloma Faith was a natural fit for how I found my voice. Another Londoner, raised with a strong sense of social justice and equality, she has not been afraid to make a stand, even when it's threatened her career: It's not just that people seem to take offense more. It's that there's also more caution then, among, you know, say, some music companies about, should you be doing these things. And I know that you know you put out something one of your social media feeds about Black Lives Matter, and it did lose you. Set number of followers didn't it
12: well I was I was commenting throughout the, the the time when it was happening and I still am at least weekly because it's something very dear to my heart that I've always been very passionate about as I said before I set up black and white united school and I lost 5,000 followers in the two weeks where from blackout Tuesday where everyone's posting a black square to today I've lost 5,000 Thousand followers, and I've I'm stunned because all I've been talking about is basic human rights.
2: Strange, isn't it? You you have, as you say, made clear your support for the Black Lives Matter campaign, and it's been fascinating to see the kind of ripples of it spread into all kinds of industries, including journalism and television, which is my industry. Do you think there needs to be an honest reckoning within the music industry?
12: I do. I mean, I do think as well that there are different ways that this manifests. And, you know, like people are in quite a lot of denial about how Britain's different to America. And I think that the only difference between Britain and America really is a cultural one, in that Americans are very much more open and general about what they think. So their racism is explicit. And I would say that in Britain the same feelings are there, the core feelings, but that we culturally don't express those feelings in the same way. Years ago, I shot a video for Only Love Can Hurt Like This, which was the biggest song that I had written by Diane Warren. And in the video, I cast a friend of mine as the love interest. I was one day flown to America and I was asked by a very high-up exec who was... African-American, to, he said, this is the biggest chance you've got at breaking the stakes with your music career. And I said, oh, I'm really excited. I can't wait. Like, this is the moment I've been waiting for. And he said, but you have to reshoot that video because America will not buy a song with a white woman kissing a black man like that. And I was just like completely shocked and obviously as well, like, taken aback because he was an African-American exec. And I was just like, I can't do that. I, I just was like, I said I wouldn't be able to... If I am broke American, I made loads of money as a consequence of that, knowing that I'd re-shot a video to make it, you know, not a biracial relationship... I wouldn't be able to live with myself, I don't want that money, it's dirty.
2: A big decision of yours to refuse to reshoot
12: it. Yeah, but it was obvious to me that that was, like, what I had to do. Like, I just wouldn't be able to live with myself doing that. And I said to him, I will not break America on those terms. I'll break America on my own terms. And he said, OK, and then flew me back. And I didn't hear from my record company again after that. But there's still time. (laughs)
2: Paloma Faith.
12: Well, I hope you've enjoyed
2: this flavour of how I found my voice. There are lots more interviews featuring remarkable women and remarkable men for you to listen to. Gloria Estefan and the novelist Kate Moss are among the upcoming episodes. And do rate and leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you like it.
0: Thank you so much. What are you doing right now?